you have inspired me that, you know, maybe there's something there we can really um, find out about the family. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Maryland has an incredible African-American history. It really does. That's, yeah. that's largely untold. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is Vernice Miller-Travis, Senior Advisor for Environmental Justice and Equitable Development at SKIO, and host of our regular monthly podcast series on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our podcast today is a great interview I did almost a year ago in St. Louis at the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference with DeConte Mens Cole, Director of Policy at the Center for Community Progress. We are here together in St. Louis at the 2017 New Partners for Smart Growth Conference. Thank you for coming and joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. So we've been having this fascinating conversation, which is unfortunately not going to be a part of the podcast, <laughs> but was really fascinating just to get to know a little about you. So prior to joining the Center for Community Progress, you worked in Detroit as the Deputy Director of Dispositions for the Detroit Land Bank Authority, overseeing dispositions, property management, and compliance programs. You also served as a fellow with the White House Strong City, Strong Communities Initiative, embedded in the city of Detroit's Law Department. You hold a Master of Science from the London School of Economics. You have to tell me how you got from Kentucky there (laughs) in urban regeneration and affordable housing, a law degree from Georgetown University Law Center, and a BA from the University of Miami in International Studies and Economics. You have covered some ground in (laughs) your years on this earth. And if you were here, you could see how beautiful and young she is. She ain't been here that long, so I don't know how you've accomplished so much. And I know one of your former colleagues, Jennifer Leonard, I was on the advisory board for the National Vacant Properties Campaign when it was a part of Smart Growth America before it became this extraordinary dynamic organization at the Center for Community Progress is today. So I know a little bit about the antecedent, but hopefully as we talk, you'll say more about what the Center for Community Progress is doing today and its vision, et cetera. So my first question is, where did you grow up? So I grew up not too far from here, about two hours in a small rural town, Kentucky, called Paducah, right on the Ohio River. Strangely enough, I'm, my family is not from that area. I'm a recent immigrant. My family is Liberian. But it's um, a part of the country where there is a lot of chemical manufacturing. And so that's how my family ended up in that community. Excellent. So maybe in another podcast, we will have a conversation about her family history um, <laughs> in Maryland and going back to Liberia. It is really fascinating and it's worthy of a podcast unto itself. So given that you grew up in a rural area in Paducah, Kentucky, where did you develop this passion for urban revitalization, land regeneration? 
generation, helping cities really move forward. Where did you develop that passion? So because of my family history coming to the U.S., most of my family that immigrated in the 1980s didn't end up in rural parts of the country. Mm-hmm. They ended up in the inner cities. In fact, my family initially, our first point of entry was Pittsburgh. And a lot of my family ended up in inner city D.C., Philadelphia, in the 1980s when cities were really disinvested. They don't look like they do now. And the walls speak. They really told a story of what had happened in those communities in terms of disinvestment. In many ways, those disinvested communities also laid out opportunities for the people that lived there. Mm -hmm. So I became really intimately aware of the power of the built environment. So when I was doing some research on your background to prepare these questions, I found a piece with you giving a talk at the Living Cities Labs on memory banking for cities, and you just said the wall speaks. So I'm assuming that that is connected to this memory banking for cities. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what that is and what that means to you. So when I started to talk about memory banking, I was really referring to the nature of communities that haven't had high levels of asset ownership, yet they've been within those communities and they have stories to tell and that their history and experiences aren't recognized. So they're not registered in the National Trust of Historic Places, but they still are part of the national fabric. And it's the way that they see their community, they value their community, and it shouldn't be lost that there's value there. And I know that there are a lot of efforts around storytelling Mm -hmm. to preserve those Mm -hmm. communities and not just the space, but also the history, the wider story that's there. So an example of this is I was in Baltimore recently on a block that is completely vacant and the city is trying to revitalize this block. Everything around it has been demolished. Is this in East Baltimore? It's actually not too far. It's in Upton. It's Mm -hmm. an Upton neighborhood, actually, Mm -hmm. not too far from the Freddie Gray incident. Mm -hmm. And one of the row houses is actually the home where Thurgood Marshall was raised, Yeah, and where he grew up. The property itself is nondescript, but the history within it is something that shouldn't be lost. Mm -hmm. So how do we actually bank these memories Mm -hmm. and create value in areas that have lost so much value and been so disinvested? Mm -hmm. So this morning, as it so happens, um, you probably haven't had a chance to read the paper yet, but Mm -hmm. in the Washington Post, there are three articles today about East Baltimore and the efforts with the East Baltimore Development Initiative and the relationship between John Hopkins and the community. But really, it's a story, a well-researched story about the memories that people have of what was a thriving, Mm -hmm. thriving place, East Baltimore. Now, if you go in East Baltimore now, you see lots of vacant property, lots of vacant land, lots of challenges that are present. But what you don't see is what you just talked about, what East Baltimore used to be. Yeah. You know? And I think that it's essential to recognizing people who for many times were denied opportunity to own property, have been disinvested of property. How are they able to tell their history within an environment that doesn't mm-hmm. actually capture it? And just a, you know, a little aside, you mentioned Thurgood Marshall and, you know, so Thurgood Marshall, Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall was from Baltimore and 
he wound up in D.C. because he wanted to go to law school at the University of Maryland, and they did not accept blacks at the time. And he was so wounded by that throughout his life that years, decades later, the University of Maryland School of Law um, wanted to give him an honorary degree. And they put an event together. They had an event, and he refused to come, and he did not come. He said, I said I would never step foot back in that institution again, and he never did. So this issue, even someone as erudite, as sophisticated, as world-knowledgeable as Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, he was wounded by what happened to him in Maryland and the things that were closed off to him. He never forgot. He went to his grave still feeling wounded by the things that were denied to him when he was growing up and when he was a young man in Maryland. So your theory about that is very prescient. And I think people don't recognize. Are you familiar with this book, um, Rucha, by Dr. Mindy Thompson, Full of Love? I haven't heard of it. You really should get it because it it really, I think, speaks to what you are talking about. And her, her basic premise is that when you see a community that experiences a lot of disinvestment, a lot of poverty, a lot of social dislocation, the first thing policymakers think about is how can we redo that place? How can, and some of it might be about moving those people to someplace else, but she's a psychiatrist and she said the psychological wounds that carry with people over generations from being moved from that place where they had social connections and their connection to the land is so devastating. And it presents it so many different ways that it's hard to wrap your head around. Well, they live in a much better neighborhood. They live in much better housing. They have much better resources. But what they don't have is their connection to each other, Mm -hmm. their connection to the old church, the place where they're ancestors are buried, right? The stores, the places that they went, the growing up, the park, the in Baltimore, the marble steps. You know, my mother used to tell me that it was the thing every Saturday that people cleaned their steps. Everybody had marble steps in front of their row houses. No matter how wretched your house was, you had these marble steps and you would be out there scrubbing them on your hands and knees every Saturday morning. But that is a memory that people share from that place, right? Mm-hmm. It's not written down a lot. My mother Mm -hmm. told me and my grandmother told me that. That's how I know that, right? So that memory, that psychic memory and relationship to place is so powerful in people's lives. And we tend to think just moving people to another better community is going to make everything all right. Sometimes it makes it a lot worse. Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. So tell me a little bit about the mission for the Center for Community Progress. And you came there to work there in 2015. What drew you to it and Mm -hmm. what is its mission? So the organization is the first national organization focused on abandonment and vacancy. And what I mean by focus is really looking at the systems that create and sustain vacancy and disinvestment. And I, I've worked with Center for Community Progress for years. As you, you stated, I was based in Detroit working at the Land Bank, actually an institution that was created in part by work done by the Center for Community Progress. Mm -hmm. And I saw their ability to support communities across the country and really see that there was a movement. There was a movement to identify strategies for increasing investment in these communities and revitalizing them. Mm -hmm. When an opportunity became available not to do this, not just in the individual city, but to start talking about this work on the national and federal level, Because even though affordable housing, a very key issue, has a national and federal mechanism, there's no federal mechanism for disinvested communities. So I think that there's real opportunity to look at federal 
policy making and national policy making and not just see this as a city of Baltimore issue or a Detroit issue or a Cleveland issue. Mm -hmm. We hear people from rural West Virginia, my hometown, downtown Paducah, Paducah, Kentucky, Mm -hmm. wanting to identify strategies for recruiting capital to these communities and also shoring up their long-term sustainability. I have so much I want to mine on this issue, and I'm going to ask you more questions, but I want to depart and ask you this question. One of the things that we've heard a lot coming through the most recent presidential election is that there are whole swaths of the country who feel like the public policy conversation that's been underway for the last anywhere from eight to 20 years is a conversation that's left them out, and that has not been about investing in Rust Belt communities, um, southern towns that have lost their economic base, more rural communities with a different population than most major urban metropolitan areas. Do you think that's true? Do you think that we have been thinking about and driving a policy conversation that really bypassed those communities? Or have we not been effective in communicating the bigger vision of what it is we've been trying to do? What do you think? So I think the issue isn't that the policies have bypassed those communities. It's that the alliances and coalitions between these communities have not been formed and that we have siloed out um, based on geography, how we serve these areas rather than issue. So what I mean by that, for example, is um, Brookings did an excellent paper looking at male unemployment. Male unemployment in rural America mirrors that of male urban unemployment. The issues around the heroin epidemic rivals that of the 1980s crack epidemic Mm -hmm. in inner cities in the U.S. Mm -hmm. You can see a lot of parallels regardless of geography of disinvestment. Mm -hmm. And those alliances should have been formed 20, 30 years ago. What we found actually, I think, during this election is that Because of these silos being created, it's actually set up groups that have much more in common against each other. Mm -hmm. And it also hasn't allowed for real conversations, particularly about the so-called recovery. Mm -hmm. You know, the recovery over the last three, possibly five years has really been focused on coastal megacities. There hasn't been an even recovery in places that flips like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and in some parts of uh, rural America, they're even further behind than they were 20 years ago. Wow. So when you go home to Kentucky, what's the conversation like? What drives people? What motivates people? What gets them stirred up? So I grew up in probably an area that has a poverty rate of 47% and voted overwhelmingly over 70% for Trump. Mm-hmm. So their reality is that they aren't a part of their conversation, that there's not a long-term federal or national strategy to think about this part of the country that has lost its largest employer within the last 10 years, that's facing wide-scale rural white poverty as well, and has disinvestment. It's scattered. It doesn't look like Baltimore or Cleveland. Mm -hmm but the impact of it is just as pronounced. So having said that, and I just an, another data point that really resonates with me, particularly around Kentucky, is um, the overwhelming vote for the governor, not in this past election, but the year before, 
that said that they were going to overturn Kentucky Connect, which was the Kentucky version of the Affordable Care Act. And I can't think of a state that has a greater need for public health infrastructure than does Kentucky. But yet people voted for someone who said he was going to do away with a program that has brought so much relief and so much benefit to people who otherwise could not get access to health care in Kentucky. I can't wrap my mind around it, but I know wrapping my mind around that is important to understanding this bigger conversation that we need to be having and re-knitting these ties between communities and different kinds of people. But it was startling to me that people would make a decision that said they, they were going to hurdle backwards as opposed to moving forward. What do you think about that? And it's difficult for me to wrap my mind around because I think that a lot of the recent elections have really been a pyrrhic victory for the white working class, that they were victorious in making a statement, but in terms of actually programs that would benefit these communities, I think that it largely we're looking at more sustained poverty and more sustained disinvestment. And I think that in terms of identifying co-conspirators, collaborators, those that are able to create alliances, that's necessary because I want where I grew up to be invested. I want it to be a sustainable community. I think it should be a place that does not have the level of poverty that it does. But the only way to do so is not for it to really see itself as this one individual town against a federal system. It has to recognize that it's part of a wider mechanism of disinvestment. And so do you think, since you are part of the Strong City, Strong Communities initiative out of the White House, do you think that the design of that was meant to drive reinvestment to as many far-flung places as they could capture, or was it more narrowly focused? What was your experience? The program itself was more narrowly focused. It was focused on distressed cities. There, With each cohort, there was, I believe, between nine, maybe 20 cities at most that were identified. I think the one thing that was helpful is that it embedded federal actors within a local government. And it was about collaboration in a way that the federal government hasn't collaborated with municipalities before. Mm -hmm. So where are we making progress in revitalizing blighted communities? So we are making significant progress in communities, particularly Detroit has done an enormous amount in terms of its ability to move to scale, in terms of moving ownership from public into private ownership, particularly for home ownership through the land bank. It also has moved and developed a, an effective demolition system, mm-hmm. and I think that it's con- that system is continuing to evolve. I do think a lot of communities are starting to get an understanding of the scope of blight in terms of the volume, as well as some of the legal systems that are facilitating and sustaining it, and particularly around tax reform, tax foreclosure, and tax lien sales reform. Mm -hmm. I know currently in the state of Maryland, some of my colleagues have been working with the city of Baltimore and Maryland reps at looking at tax reform in that state. Mm -hmm. Michigan is a leader, Ohio as well. That being said, I, as some places are starting to figure it out, are really starting to get a handle, are seeing shift changes, at the same time, in the life cycle of many cities, they're moving into greater distress, greater disinvestment. So it's a problem that we've got to figure out how to outrun. 
because as one place is starting to become more and more prosperous, we're seeing the impacts of capital um, being lost from other areas. Mm-hmm. So just a very interesting dynamic that's happening between Prince George's County, where I live, and the District of Columbia, Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. And as Washington is becoming more and more prosperous, a lot of the poorest part of the population is being moved into Prince George's County. And we can absorb a lot of that, but why can't we figure out a way to make D.C. the kind of city that it always was, where all kinds of people of all kinds of income strata live together, thrive together, and are part of what makes the District of Columbia the District of Columbia? We used to joke about it in the 80s and refer to it as Chocolate City, as (laughs) Parliament Funkadelic once, you know, famously named um, D.C., but it's not only is it not chocolate, it's not even Cafe Olay, and it's headed to a community and a place that we don't recognize any more for the cultural touchstone that the District of Columbia is. People talk about it as the federal city, but there's also the District of Columbia, right? D.C. is a thriving place, but I wonder if we can say that it's thriving when it no longer has a single unit of affordable housing. That is not the D.C. that I remember, but it is the D.C. of today, and some people seem to be really happy with that and happy with where it's going. I wonder if we need to really think and, and discuss and think about the policy implications of the kinds of things that are happening. So some people look at D.C. and see a thriving economy. I look at D.C. and see a whole swath of the population that's been forced out and can no longer afford to live there. And I don't think any city should be such that people can't afford to live there. I'm from New York. The same thing is happening in New York City. And I think we really have to challenge that, that that Mm -hmm. is not by definition a thriving place. It's a wealthy place, but that doesn't, wealth does not necessarily equivocate with thriving, right? Absolutely. So what are some of the best public policies you see? And I wonder if, you know, as you were talking about how some we have sort of this uneven growth paradigm out there now, some places are really doing well, but a lot of places are not. What's the role of the federal government, right? And at this moment when we don't know how the federal government is going to continue Mm -hmm. to be a partner, though it's been a great partner in this sort of new partners for smart growth and sustainability conversation, can local communities and can local counties drive this conversation without support of the federal government? Can it happen without a role for the federal government? I think that a lot can be done without federal government support, although for deeply distressed Places, the ability to recruit capital through federal mechanisms is necessary if we're actually going to look at long-term sustainability. At a local and state level, again, some of the things that have been very effective has really looking at tax reform. A lot of this vacant inventory and public inventory enters into the system through the tax sales system or through the tax foreclosure process. Mm -hmm. And there are ways that the tax system can be structured to ensure that people are not disowned of their properties, as well as ensuring continued investment if it moves into public ownership and needs to be sold to responsible homeowner Mm -hmm. or property owner. Mm -hmm. Another system that that could support locally is really looking at code enforcement and rental enforcement. There's a lot that can be done at the local level and how we encourage people to take care of their properties and how we encourage landlords to invest in properties and maintain them Mm -hmm. to the well-being of our residents and tenants. And lastly, I would say there are 
innovative policy mechanisms such as community land trusts as well as land banks that have ensured issues around affordability in land trust model and around kind of the assembly of land for investment to the greater benefit of the community in terms of land banks. Land banks, really something that needs to come into their own at this point because they can offer a lot of opportunities. So the last three questions I have for you are things we call the lightning round questions. So I'm going to ask you the question. I want you to answer the first thing that pops into your head. So the first one is, if you could advocate one public policy to advance community revitalization, what would it be? The one public policy I would advance would be increasing the number of mortgages in disinvested communities and really looking to overcome the decades-long history of redlining. I think that we have never seen real uh, loan and mortgage availability in a lot of communities of color, and that if we just gave people a real opportunity to own and in their neighborhoods, that would be transformative. Wow. We could have a whole conversation about this issue in Prince George's County, right, Marilyn? Mm -hmm. What could individuals do to support community revitalization? As an individual, I want to do something. What could I do? So as individuals, one thing you could do is, number one, show up at your city council and really try to understand how your tax system works, understand what tax abatements are given to corporations coming into your community, how your tax levies work, and also what is the wider reinvestment strategy. The more educated that we have residents that recognize the power of recruiting capital through property taxes and the implication of not taking taxes, for example, with a lot of the large-scale redevelopment projects, Port Covington being one of the largest in the Atlantic history. Mm-hmm the better we will be positioned to put people in power who seek out long-term investments in our community, not just short-term wins and gains. So I hope y'all are listening to this because this is powerful transformation. If we could take this control about what we do in our own communities and be really engaged, you would see some dramatic shifts in investment, capital aggregation, um, what happens in communities, who makes decisions, right? That's so such a powerful example. So finally, if you are successful, what will community revitalization and land restoration efforts look like 30 years from now? In a dream scenario, if I'm successful, I'll be out of work, that we won't need to have strategies to secure investment in these communities. Realistically, 30 years from now, I suspect that we wouldn't have figured that out. But what I do hope that is we have sustained models where some of these policy innovations such as land banking, urban farming, community land trusts have been sufficiently in place that we have a mechanism once we start to see disinvestment popping up that we're able to move quickly and address it before it gets to the degree that we've seen in many of our communities. Mr. Conti, men's cold. This has just been a fascinating conversation. I'm so happy that you said yes to being interviewed for the podcast. We thank you, our listeners, for listening to Infinite Earth Radio and uh, hope that you will continue to uh, listen to the podcast and subscribe through iTunes and through uh, Stitcher if you're an Android user, as am I. And thank you. You were just a joy to talk to. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.